Stay with us following this week's Crosswalk for information on Pastor Clay's new book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus, this is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Because whether we're talking about someone that's teaching a work salvation or a prosperity emphasis or uh, an emotional joy ride or or whatever that you can can think of if it takes the emphasis off of the sacrifice of Christ and the surrender of you and me it's wrong we're in a study of the book of mark entitled jesus the real action hero as we move toward the last part of mark chapter 12 Jesus offers three important teaching moments. Last week, Pastor Clay covered the first teaching dealing with who the Christ is. This week, our study picks up with verses 38 through 44 as Jesus makes an observation to show us danger and a commendation to help us live by faith. We're glad you've joined us this week. Now here's Pastor Clay. Have you ever been warned about something or someone? Has somebody ever come up to you and, and give you a warning about something or, or about uh, someone? Uh, I, I see Russell sitting out there and I'm thinking, you know, he's a uh, retired Marine Corps. I know he's in act, was in active duty and served in a lot of hot places in the world for a lot of years and maybe others here as well. But, but I, I'm, think, I'm thinking, I'm sure Russell many times got got uh, orders or, or, or uh, information about warnings of things that were coming up and things like that. I don't know if you've been in a place in your life where maybe somebody came up to you, hey, you know, watch out. Have y'all seen that, the M&M commercial where the, uh, the, yeah, the lady says to the one M&M lady, she says, watch out for, watch, she, she loves chocolate, she'll devour you. And y'all seen that commercial? It's a warning. I've told this story before, and I'll, I'll give you just a brief version of it, but, but it kind of fits where, where I'm going this morning. In, in 1997, I was in the country of, of Kenya on the continent of Africa, and I was taking part in a crusade, what was called the, uh, the Western Kenya Crusade. Uh, it was out uh, by Lake Victoria near the Ugandan border, just really a beautiful part of the world. Um, and uh, while we were there, we, we, you know, it was a fantastic time, and we saw God do great things, and it was very memorable. It was the first time I'd ever gone overseas on a mission trip, and it was very impactful uh, to, to my life and, and for my life. But uh, toward the end of our time there, uh, the United States Embassy issued a warning that uh, the next day uh, they, they were expecting some, some trouble, some riots and things like that in downtown Nairobi. It was the anniversary of some political uprising. And so all Americans were warned to stay off the streets of Nairobi and in general just stay off out of, you know, stay off the streets of Kenya in general for the entire day because there could be trouble. Uh, I, I went uh, on this trip with, while I was in seminary and our seminary professor, uh, you know, he was just the kind of guy that it took everything in stride, and so he said, oh, you know, it'll be fine. We can go out tomorrow. It'll be no trouble at all. Uh, we're not going anywhere near uh, Nairobi. Uh, we were going at, it was one of the last days we were going to be there to do some, some sightseeing. We were going to a, a, a national game preserve. And I said, we won't go any, anywhere near Nairobi. Long story short, the van I was traveling in ended up smack dab in the middle of downtown Nairobi. Just as riot police are busting out of their armored uh, vehicles 
and tear gas is flying back and forth across the van and rocks. I, I was thinking about that last night. Rocks and bottles and, and whatever all people could throw. There's thousands and thousands of people all everywhere, all over the streets, running in total chaos. Anything you can imagine you've seen in a movie or whatever, it was exactly that, I'm telling you, or, or more. And people are running everywhere, and, and the van is swerving, you know, trying to miss cars that, have, that are burning and, and people that are, that are falling out. And, and, just, and I was thinking about this last night that all the rocks and bottles and whatever all was being fired, to the best of my, uh, my memory, not a single uh, item struck that van that I can remember. Uh, not a single item struck that van as we were swerving and flying and, and the driver's eyes were just as bugged out as you can uh, imagine. And um, yeah, that was, that was a time when we probably should have heeded that warning. We probably should have listened to that warning. Maybe you've been at a place in your life where you've had a warning given to you. Maybe you heeded it, maybe you didn't heed it. Today, as we continue this part in Mark chapter 12 where Jesus has given this teaching, and really this is one of the most um, extensive teaching parts that Mark gives. I've said this a number of times. Mark it records Jesus as what? What? That's right, he's a man of action. And Mark, more than any other gospel writers, records the actions. And he goes from one to the other, one to the other. Just moves from action to action to action. And he doesn't generally cover as much teaching as the other gospel writers do. Even in today's account, I'll bring this up in just a moment, he doesn't record as much of the teaching. But this is a pretty extensive teaching part that Mark records. And in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is going to give a warning... And, uh, and then he's going to make an observation. We'll talk about that too, time uh, permitting. But open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 12. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, of course, we always have the text up on the screen also. But I encourage you to bring a copy of God's Word. We're in Mark chapter 12. And we're, we're uh, finishing up really a, a part of that we looked at uh, last week. Finishing up the last part of Mark chapter 12. Y'all doing okay? You sure y'all don't want to like get closer to God? Just, I'm just saying. Okay, feel free to do so. All right, now here, I want to just briefly mention what we said last week in this, because it's kind of a three, three-pronged teaching time that Jesus does. And uh, the first thing, if you were here last week, you know that I said this. We started with this, that Jesus asks a question to tell a truth, to, t- to teach us the truth. In verse 35, uh, it says this, And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So Jesus asks a question. You, if you were here the week before, you remember that Jesus was asked a series of questions. And he, he blows them out of the water with his answers. And then at the end of the text, it says nobody dared to ask him another question. So beginning here in verse 35, Jesus kind of turns that around and Jesus asks a question. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, in other words, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he wrote this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. And and not to belabor the point, but just to remind you from what I said last week, is that Jesus is this master teacher, and he he brings up uh, these theological ideas that that he brings together in a way that made the people think in a way that they hadn't thought before. And he brings up the fact, and, and we looked at it last week, but he actually, in Matthew, records that Jesus asked the religious leaders first, uh, 
what do you think about the Christ, the, the Messiah, the Savior? Remember, we talked about what that term means. What do you think about the Christ? What do you, whose son is he? And, and they immediately answer, David's, because it was known that the, the people just understood that when the Messiah, when the Christ, and those terms are, are the same, when he comes, he will be a descendant of David. Okay? Jesus asked them that. They, they respond correctly. So then Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, well, why, why do the religious leaders say that, that the Christ will be a son or a descendant of David? For David himself says, and then he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1, a, a, a psalm that David wrote, a messianic psalm. Well, David himself calls the Christ, David himself calls him Lord. So how can he be his Lord and at the same time be his son? It's a brilliant question. And, and then he just, like I mentioned last week, he just, I love the fact that he just kind of just leaves it hanging there for the people to figure out that there's, there's only one explanation for this, and that is that the Christ had to be the eternal God the Son, that he had the only way that he could be David's descendant and be David's Lord is if he existed before David existed. And then he came to earth and was born as a man in the line of David, as a descendant of David. That's the only way it could possibly work out that he could be both David's son, his descendant, and could be David's Lord. So Jesus asked this question in order to, to speak into their lives a truth that they, were, they, they needed to draw that conclusion Sometimes it's okay to think. Can I, can I remind you of that? We, we, more and more, we, we live in a culture where everybody's like, well, just give me the answer. Just, just tell me this. Just show me this. Just, sometimes it's okay to just, and that's what Jesus does. He just kind of puts it out there and says, hmm, what do, y'all, what do y'all think? How can that be? To think through the truth. Okay, let's get to the, the kind of the second teaching prong this morning. But I just want to remind you of that, that the, that the only way that could be possible, and what Jesus puts out there is if, is if the Christ already existed as God the Son in all of eternity. All right, second, second idea this morning looks like this. Jesus makes a declaration to show us the danger. Dun, dun, dun. Danger. All right, let me read verse 38. Picking it up. In his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and chief seats in the synagogues, and places of honor at the banquets, who devour widows' houses, and whose, for appearance' sake, offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. Jesus makes a declaration to warn us about something. Now, Jesus says, beware, watch out for the religious leaders. Now, why would Jesus say this? What, what, what was it about these guys that would, that would make Jesus say, watch out for the religious leaders? What, what, what made them so dangerous? Now, I should say that Mark's recording of this, and it's pretty brief, you know, what he, what he has to say about the religious leaders here. Mark's version is the nice version, okay? Uh, if you read Matthew's account, if you read Luke's account, um, it goes into much more detail about what Jesus had to say about and to these religious leaders. He was not a fan. Let me, let me just 
give you just a tidbit, just a taste of some of it from, from Matthew's gospel. Let's, Matthew 23, uh, let's look at, start at verse 13. Um, this is the same account, okay? This is Matthew's version. Matthew just goes into more detail. And in this case, he's going into more detail about what all Jesus had to say about these, these scribes, these religious leaders. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You shut, you're cutting people off from the kingdom of heaven. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Pretty strong. Look at verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, one, one convert, to, to come to faith in, in Judaism. Because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. <laughs> uh, look at uh, verse 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Jesus apparently liked that, that stay, saying like that. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may be clean also. Oh, you look so good on the outside. Look at verse 27, 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. One more, uh, real briefly, verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? For the life of me, I can't understand why these guys didn't like Jesus. I, I don't. Listen, this was serious business to Jesus. These men were leading people down a path to hell. We're talking about the eternal destiny. Think about that a moment now. Okay, the eternal destiny where a person will spend eternity and they were leading people away from a right relationship with God instead of toward a right relationship with God. So no, Jesus is not interested in playing nice. He has tried to reason with these guys. He has tried to show them and prove to him that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, and they have rejected him every step of the way. They have tried to hinder every bit of work that he did because their hearts were hard. And they wanted nothing to do with Jesus, and so Jesus calls it exactly like he sees it. This this is the essence of the problem, that these religious leaders... And that's, by the way, why Jesus says that they face greater condemnation. They had God's truth. They were, they were educated in God's word. They knew or, or should have known what it said. And they not only should have known it for themselves, they should have been teaching it to other people. But instead, they were teaching people that, that right standing with God was, was based on whether you kept what the Jews would call the law whether you kept the festivals, whether you kept the the ceremonies, whether you made the sacrifices, that in other words, it was what you did that determined where you would spend eternity. And it was taking people away from God rather than to God. Now, some of you know that I, I have been known, I have been known to go off on a TV preacher or two 
from time to time. And, and here's why. Because whether we're talking about someone that's teaching a work salvation or a prosperity emphasis or uh, an emotional joy ride or, or whatever that you can, can think of, if it takes the emphasis off of the sacrifice of Christ and the surrender of you and me, it's wrong. It's wrong. And it has to be called wrong. So, so here's part of what made, okay, here's part of what made these guys so dangerous. It's, it's what, I, what I would call their damned doctrine. Man, I just knew I was going to get a... <gasps> it was their damned doctrine. Now, I'm not cussing. I, I'm not, take it easy. I'm not, I'm not cussing. I'm just telling you that their doctrine, their belief system, what, what they were teaching the people was damning the people to hell. It was a false teaching. It was a false understanding of the relationship with God, and people were damned to hell because of what they were believing and how they were acting as a result of it. Now, listen to me. Every person, you listening? Every single person, you, 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 me, every person is responsible for what they believe, for the decisions they make, the choices they make, the sins they commit, and what they choose to believe. Every person individually is responsible for that. But these men were men in a position of religious leadership. These men were men who were supposed to be teaching spiritual truths to the people and guiding them toward God, and instead they were taking them away from God. They were damning people as a result of what they were teaching the people, and the people were, were buying it. They were, they were believing it, as a general rule, the majority of people. And I've, I said this a couple of weeks ago, but ladies and gentlemen, please understand, this is what separates... True, authentic, orthodox Christianity from every other religion and belief system in the world. This, this is it. This is what separates uh, orthodox Christianity from every other belief system in the world. Whether you're talking about uh, Buddhism or, or Hinduism or Mohammedism or any other ism, at, at its core teaching is this idea that where you spend eternity is determined by what you do down here, how you act, how you live, how you treat other people, that that is the ter- determining factor for where you will spend eternity. That, that, at its core, is the teaching of every ism that you can think of. And listen, I, uh, it, no offense, but even the belief systems that throw Jesus into the mix, okay? Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or or even Catholicism, in my understanding of, of, its, of its doctrine, and I know some of you have Catholic backgrounds, and, and even Catholicism that says that you need to believe in Jesus, they also say that you need to perform good works. You need to do certain things in order to stay in the good graces of God or of the church in the case of Catholicism. In other words, they add my works or your works, add them to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Yes, Jesus, yes, he died on the cross, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That is a damned doctrine. That is a doctrine that is sending people away from God instead of toward God. And it is the, it is the belief system of millions of people. And Jesus said, watch out for it. How many of you are... Uh, 
are fans, and it's okay if you're embarrassed and you don't want to raise your hand about this. Uh, I'm, I'm proud to say it. But how many, how many of you are fans of these made-for-television Christmas movies that come out this time of year? Right? Hey, come on. There's a few of us. Yeah. I love them, man. I love them. Now, listen, I've already watched a bunch of them this year. The, they, are, they are incredibly cheesy, um, often badly acted, and almost always incredibly predictable. What? She ended up with a guy? You know, he's like, under the mistletoe? <laughs> what are the odds? No, I, know, I know, I know how they are, but I love them. I, I, I just, I, I like to watch them. The other, the other night, I was watching one of these where uh, a, a, young, a young husband and father, he had a wife and, uh, and a son, you know, maybe 10 8, 10, 11, 12 years old, something like that. Anyway, um, he was killed in an automobile accident, and um, uh, his wife and, and son survived, but he was killed in the accident. And uh, his spirit couldn't leave the earth yet because he still had a job to do. He had to help his wife and his son find joy again, find happiness again, because he was killed right at Christmas time. And so then a year later, right at Christmas time, um, he has to help them find happiness. Y'all with me on the story? I know you're like, well, this is the best story ever. Anyway, uh, he has to help them find joy and happiness again. And in, in the course of the film, the, the son asks his mom, Mom, uh, what happens to people when they die and, and where do they go? And her mom answers, well, um, if you're a good person down here on earth, uh, when you die, you get to go up to heaven and become an angel. We talked about that last week. <laughs> and become an angel. And if you're not a good person, you don't. What is that? Works salvation. If, if I'm good, if I treat people good, it'll end up good for me someday. And that is a damning doctrine, ladies and gentlemen, because the Bible teaches, I, I'm sorry, but the Bible teaches that, that all the good that you could ever think about doing is nothing. That's right. Some of y'all even quote it. Uh, from the Old Testament, uh, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. He says this. He says, all of us are, are dirty with sin. All the right things we have done are like filthy pieces of cloth. Now, he, he's talking about in the context of trying to earn God's approval. That's what I, the nation of Israel thought. You know, they'd been sinful. They'd run away from God. But, oh, you know, we can, if we do these good works, if we keep these festivals, if we do this thing, then we'll be in right standing with God. And, and God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, says, there, what you're doing are like filthy pieces of cloth. All of us are like dead leaves, and our sins, like the wind, have carried us away. Listen, a lot of you know this, but here's what the Bible says about how salvation is obtained. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works, so that no one can boast. No one can take credit for it. No one can say, well, I did enough good, or I gave enough money, or, or I, I helped 16 little old ladies across the street, or I, I, I served at a Thanksgiving homeless show. You understand what I'm saying? Now, for the record... The Bible does have something to say about good works. The Bible does have something to say about our being good and being a good person and doing good works. But listen to me. It is, it is not to earn. Are you listening to me? It is not to earn salvation. It is rather evidence of salvation. 
It is the fact that it exposes, watch this, that my good works, what I do, how I treat people, uh, all that kind of stuff, that it exposes, that work exposes the work that God is already doing in and through me. Do you understand the difference? I want to read uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 to you again, this time adding verse 10. Uh, you've seen it before, but for our grace are you saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. Watch this, verse 10. For we are, what is that next word? His workmanship. You, you think you work this out so that you got into heaven and you, sorry. For we are His workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus, He did it, watch this, Four good works that God prepared beforehand so that we may do them. It's what God has done in me. Listen, when I die, I I hope that people think that I was a good person. I hope that they think that I did some good for people in, in the life that I had, however long that it is. But God forbid that they should in any way think that I did those things in some poor attempt to earn God's approval. It can't be done. That it is only through grace, through God's grace gift, the sacrifice of his son, even as as John led us and prayed this morning to remind us of that. It's only his sacrifice that made that possible. And so the, the religious leader's doctrine was teaching people exactly the opposite of that, in essence, what it was saying. It was taking people away from God. And so Jesus says, watch out. Watch out for that, because it is easy to get sucked into that, ladies and gentlemen. Can I, can I remind It's easy to get sucked in. All right, let, let me give you what might, you might not think of immediately, but what I think is a second part of the warning that Jesus gives, and, and is what I refer to as their poisonous pride. It, it, read part of the text again, what it says. It says, beware of these teachers of religious law. Now listen, listen, this is Jesus' warning. For they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public it is it is this poisonous pride that was with them listen whether it was right or wrong or, or whatever, the, their position as the religious leaders of Israel carried with it a certain amount of status. These were, these were educated men. These were men in, in official religious, you know, and, and, and maybe that's hard for us sometimes to think about that here in America. But Israel in that day, uh, I mean, Judaism was, I mean, that, that's, that was their government. That was Yes, they were ruled by Rome, but that was everything. And so these guys, they have, a, they have a bit of clout. They have a bit of status. They, they get recognized when they're out in the marketplace and they have on their, their, their robes and their garments and all that kind of stuff. And they get the respectful greetings. And, and, and when they show up at a banquet, they're offered the, uh, the, the head spot, the best seat in the house. And, and when they go to synagogue, when they go to church, they're, they're given the best seat in the house. And they loved it. Loved it. Now, Here's the dangerous part of it. You don't, listen to me, you don't have to be a person of position 
to struggle with pride. Pride can creep into any of our lives at any point in our lives. Yes, people with status, people who are famous or who are wealthy or who are in positions of, of leadership uh, among a group of people, whether it's pastors or whether it's uh, politicians or, or whatever it is, yes, yes, they certainly have to be aware that pride is creeping at their doors, is crouching at their door. They certainly need, need to be aware of every motive behind everything that they do, and they need to check those motives and make sure that what they're doing is, is actually intended to be. Yes, they have to be aware of pride, but I'm telling you, you don't have to be in a position of leadership to struggle in the area of pride. And pride will wreck you. You hear me? Let me, let me give you what I put, three reasons why. Pride promotes self-promotion. Pride focuses on self-focus. And pride denies self-denial. Now, anybody that has a shred of understanding about New, Christ, New Testament Christianity should almost immediately recognize that that is the polar opposite of what the New Testament teaches as to what a follower of Jesus ought to look like. To, to be self Promoting that, you know, hey, I got to watch out for myself. Hey, I, I deserve it. Hey, I got to, to uh, have a self-focus. Well, I, how come I didn't get this? Or why didn't that? How come this? How, focused on me and to deny self-denial. Hey, I, I deserve this. Or I, this ought to work out for me. Or I, I want that. Or I think that they, I'm telling you, it's the polar opposite. Here it is. You, you, you've read it. If you've been a part of cross-culture any period of time, you've probably heard it. Many times, what is the theme verse for cross-culture church? Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, this instrument of death. I, I've got to, in other words, I've got to die to myself. I've got to die to my wants, my dreams, my ambitions, my whatever, when they are not what God wants for me. I have to take up my cross daily and follow me. That, ladies and gentlemen, you know, I know you know this, but that, ladies and gentlemen, that's what a New Testament follower of Jesus Christ looks like. That's it. It's not easy. It sometimes feels impossible, but that is what a follower of Jesus looks like. And pride threatens every bit of that. Listen, let me, let me, give you, let me show you real quickly. It's a good bit of verses to read. But let me give you real quickly an example of what happens when pride works its way into a person's life or into a group of persons, even if we're talking about church or something like that, into a group of person's uh, life. It's, it's from earlier in Mark. It's from Mark chapter 10. I don't know which one of our, this is while I was out and in the hospital, I don't know which one of our distinguished uh, preachers covered this part, but maybe you remember this passage of scripture in Mark chapter 10. It says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, uh, came up to Jesus saying, teacher, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's bold. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. <laughs> but, Jesus, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drank or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm, I am baptized? He's referring to his death, what, what was fixing to happen to him. He's fixing to go to the cross. He said, are you prepared for that? Of course they weren't, but, but listen to him. We are able. Pfft, yeah. 
And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now watch this, here it comes. Hearing this, the ten, the other, right, the rest of the posse, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. That means they were ticked off at him. Y'all don't know what indignant means. They ticked off at him. Calling them to himself... Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Listen, listen. These were, not, these were not bad men. These were not wicked men. These were not evil men. These were men that had given it all up to follow Jesus, had walked away from everything to follow Jesus. But when pride begins to creep in, I'm telling you, it, it, it's a wonder that the whole thing didn't self-destruct before it even got started. As hot-headed as Peter appears to have been in the New Testament, it's amazing, and it's only by the grace of God that the whole thing didn't, didn't end up in a UFC match or something because... because this, this is what happens. And listen, I'm telling you this uh, just, uh, just from years of experience. Pride is at the heart of virtually every, every church issue and church split that has ever occurred. Some type of, I didn't get this, I wanted that, I think that, I ought to have that. I, it, it, it's the idea of pride. See, it's not just the idea that, oh, I got to get the best table, the best seat in the house. It's about well, let me put it this way. Let me, I, I like to give you something sometimes to help you remember. Pride will distort your reality, feed your carnality, and erode your spirituality. It will cause you to, to, to see things differently. Well, how, how, come, how come they got that? How come this? How, uh, and all of a sudden, your reality becomes something that, that is not really reality. And it will, it will feed your carnality, your flesh. Well, I want that. I think it ought to turn out this. I deserve this. I, I, and it will erode your spirit. You, you can be walking strong in Jesus. You can be growing in God's word. You can be learning other things. And, and you can begin to see, if you, if you could step back and look at your life, you could say, wow, how did I get there? I, I thought I was doing good. I, I always thought I was doing well. I, I thought I was walking with Jesus and trying to be. It's poisonous pride and it spreads among people. And Jesus said, watch out, look out for that. So he gives this, this declaration, this warning. And this morning, just as much as we have time for, just to cover this last idea, uh, Jesus makes an observation to help us live by faith. In verse 41, watch this now, how, how he, he, he moves from what he got. He first asks the question, uh, and leaves them with this deep theological truth, and then he gives this warning about these guys and where they're going to take you and why you got to break free of them. And then this example he gives us. And he sat down opposite the treasury. You can just see this in your mind, can't you? You can see Jesus, he's just, he's hanging around there in the temple area. And all of a sudden he just sits down and he, and he just begins to observe. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. Poor widow came and put in two small copper coins 
which amount to assent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Now, some people might look at this or read this story or hear this story and question Jesus' mathematical skills. But that's only because they're thinking, they're adding with their heads and not with their hearts. And listen to me, ladies and gentlemen, faith is an issue of the heart. Faith is an issue of the heart. One of the interesting things about this observation that Jesus makes is that I don't think that you can say, and I looked at that, I looked at all the other uh, writers' account of this, and, uh, you know, unless I'm just missing it, I don't think that you can say that Jesus necessarily uh, derided or got on to or discounted uh, the rich people and what they gave. I, I, don't, I don't think that he necessarily attacks their giving. He simply makes an observation comparing their giving to the giving of this widow. And what becomes clear is that Jesus' observation shows us that he's focused a whole lot more on not what they give to God. Listen to me. Focus not on what they give to God, but on what they believe God for that it's not it's not about the amount that they give it's the amount that they believe since Jesus uses money as this example here of faith let let me just say that that people uh, that struggle with trusting God with their finances Oftentimes, the reason that they struggle is because of exactly this right here. It's because they have sat down with pencil and paper or with keyboard and screen, and they have crunched the numbers, right? They've crunched the numbers, and they've looked at it, and it, does, it doesn't come out. It, it doesn't come out financially so that they can uh, afford to believe God about their finance. It doesn't come out so that they can believe God to give back to God what he has asked them uh, to give. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense on paper. But if you haven't learned this lesson, ladies and gentlemen, you might as well learn it now. God doesn't make sense on paper. Or he, or he doesn't have to make sense on paper. And, and from a human standpoint, I'm just telling you, in, in my 30 years or so of walking with Jesus, I'm just telling you, uh, from a human perspective, he rarely does make sense on paper. When you try and figure it out and this and, and that. And listen, if you're part of cross-culture uh, on a regular basis and have been, you know that I don't, I don't talk about money a lot. I, I really don't. I bring it up occasionally with the text deals with it or something like that or, or to celebrate how God is blessed through y'all's giving. But I, but I really don't talk about money a whole lot. But, but I, got, I have to say this. People oftentimes think that this, this whole giving thing, and that's, that's the context of what he brings this up in, that this giving thing uh, is, is based on the size of a paycheck, or it's, it's based on the amount in a checking account, or it's based on the, the number of, of responsibilities that I have. And listen to me, it's not based on any of that stuff. It's never been based on any of that stuff. It's always been about faith. 
It's always been about the ability to believe God rather than my checkbook or my checking account or my expenses or anything else like that. Will I believe God for that amount? But listen to me. Having said all that, don't get caught up in the money. Don't get bogged down in the, in the talk about the money. It's not really, this, this teaching lesson is not really about money. It's about faith. It's about the ability to believe God regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what's going on in your life. And can I tell you something? This, this just, I'm just being honest. I am blown away by this woman's faith. And, and, I, and listen, I, I'm your pastor and so I don't, I don't mind saying this. I don't, I don't mind telling you that, that, that when it comes to giving, my, my wife and I give, give more than a tithe. We, we, give, we give more than, than the minimum that, that God asks. And we challenge ourselves every year to, to increase that amount more. But I've never emptied my checking account to God. Because listen, well, and, well, let me say this. I've also said, I've said, God, it's all yours. God, it all belongs to you. God, every bit. God, my house, my health. Uh, God, the, the dollars in my pocket, it all belongs to you. Every ounce of energy that I have, every breath in my body, God, it's all yours and I give it all to you. And, and that's fine and good. And, and, and I think we should say things like that. We sing songs uh, about that kind of thing. And I think that's right. And I, I think that's, that's good. But I'm saying to you that this, this widow here, she carried faith to a whole nother level. Because when she goes home that day, when she leaves the temple, when she walks away, if God does not show up, she dies. It's, she has nothing. She has nothing because she has given everything that she had. And Jesus says, there's, there's the model of faith. That's what your life should look like. Well, well, Clay, are you telling me that I should just write a check out to the church this morning for, for every single penny that's in my, my checking account and my, and my savings account? What time is it? Do we need to quit at this? Actually, no. I, I, don't, I don't think that you should do that. I don't think. You, 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 have, you have debts that you need to pay because you honor God by doing that and you don't honor him if, if you're not paying them. You have responsibilities, you have, you have families to feed, you have, you understand, money is a tool. That's what, money is a tool that God gives to us to use in a way that makes provision for our lives, but that the ultimate design is that we honor Him through it. Now, certainly I think we should be seeking to honor God with what we've been given and, 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 the, and being faithful and, and living by faith and understanding that I should give back to God at least what He asked me to give. Yes, I, I think... All of that. But it, it's not about the money. It's about the faith that each of us should have in our lives. And the model is this poor widow who's held up to us as an example. I, uh, Ray Hoffman sent me this article uh, about a, a pastor and his wife. I think they were down in Texas, large church. Uh, he's making, uh, he, it doesn't say specifically the amount, but uh, six-figure, very close to six-figure income as a pastor, and they drive very nice cars and all that stuff, and, uh, and God just laid something on his heart about moving to, uh, to eastern Kentucky, to the Appalachian Mountains, and, and if you know anything about the, the condition of the people up there in the coal mining country and, and what has happened up there in the coal mining country, and uh, people very, very poor, very, very hard 
up. Part of the article brought out that 98%, this this was in Harlan County, 98% of the children in Harlan County were on the the lunch subsidy program. Uh, and, And many of them, they found in the summer, would would lose weight. They would go lose weight in the summer because they weren't getting that that one good meal a day that they were getting. Very hard hit. Very high percentage of unemployment. Very all of, all of that sort of thing. And, and this couple, the Rileys, uh, felt God telling them to go to Eastern Kentucky and minister there. And they went there. They sold their everything they owned and they moved to Eastern Kentucky. And, and the neat thing about this ministry and what I was reading about it, and I just got to cut through through a lot of it this morning. I, I'd love to give you some of the details, but. Uh, the Rileys don't, don't believe in soliciting uh, help. They just believe in praying. And ask, they ask people to pray, just pray. Uh, so far to date, I think they've had over 30,000 volunteers have come from 35 states and four countries to minister there. They've given, uh, through corporations, CEO, uh, CEOs involved in it and all that sort of thing, hundreds of thousands of dollars in clothing and shoes and, and food banks. And all that. They've got like 22 ministries that have been started so far. Again, listen to me. I'm not saying you ought to empty your checking account this morning. I'm not saying you ought to, ought to uh, pack up and move to Eastern Kentucky and start a ministry there. What I'm saying to you is, is that 2015 is knocking on our door. And the question that I'm asking you and I'm asking myself is, will I live to a greater degree by faith this, this, in this next year than I have in this year? Will I, will I be willing to step out even farther? And some of you may feel like you're so far out <laughs> that, that nobody can even hear you. That you're already stepping out on the edge and you may feel that way. But to be able to say, I'll live by faith. Faith is the key that opens the door to a greater relationship with God. I, I wish, I wish, I see these young men sitting over here this morning, some teenagers. I, I wish I had heard that message when I was their age. I wish I had listened to that message and thought through the truth of that. That faith is the key that opens the door to a greater relationship with God. Because I was just listening to myself and focused on myself and living for myself and not understanding that it's the key. You know this verse, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 reminds us, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Listen, all I'm asking you to do is to say, is to say God, if you'll have this conversation with him, God, in 2015, I want to live by faith to a greater degree than I have in 2014. I want to follow you. I want to do what you ask me to do. I want to be obedient to you. I want to live by faith, God. And it's okay if you don't even understand fully what that means for you or what that would look like for you. That's okay. I'm just saying if you'll have that conversation with God, I'm pretty sure God will respond to that conversation and he will show you in 2015 greater degrees of faith than you have ever known in your life. I know, scary, but he will show you life in faith to a greater degree than you've ever known and we will see God move in and through our lives and through the life of this church in ways that we have never seen him move before. If we'll say, God, I I, I don't know if I have the faith of that widow. But God, I want to have faith. I want to live by faith. Because clearly, that's what you're talking about, Jesus. We're glad you joined us for this week's Crosswalk. 
Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their lives feel disconnected with the type of life and faith that they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting? If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback form from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Clay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy of I Get It today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where you'll find what you're looking for. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.